Good to be with you all. You know, uh, Beth and I moved to Maine about a year and a half ago from, uh, from Colorado, and we had heard that Maine is a, a, a spiritually dark place. I, from what I understand, it's one of the most unchurched states in, in the nation. Is that, is that right, Blake? And, um, and yet I have to tell you, you know, we came here with that understanding, but we are encouraged at what we see God doing in this state. And the church of Christ is being built and established here in, in Maine. And you all are part of that. And um, I just love uh, fellowshipping and visiting other churches and just see how God is working in uh, building his church. And each congregation is unique. But there's a bond that we all share in Christ. And uh, it's a blessing to be with you here uh, today. I'd like to start with prayer before I preach. Lord, you are good and you are great and you are greatly to be praised. And we just thank you for your word. It is alive. It is relevant. It speaks to us. It convicts us. It encourages us. You use it to change us. And Lord, I just pray now that you would guide us as we open it up. I pray you would keep anything false from my lips and just let your truth flow through me with love, with power, with accuracy. And would you give everyone in this building right now ears to hear and hearts to respond to your truth. And Lord, um, change us. Make us more like Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. On April 29, 2011, we had an opportunity to witness what many were calling the wedding of the century at that time. Um, Prince William of England and Kate Middleton were married in Westminster Abbey. They are now known as the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. An estimated two billion people watched that wedding around the world on television. It was considered by many to be the hottest ticket in the world at that time. Who of the rich and famous would be invited? I'm curious, did any of you receive an invitation to that wedding? No, no, neither did I. Listen to some of those on the 1,900-person guest list. Along with other family members and friends, there were more than 50 members of England's royal family, 40 members of royal families from other countries, over 200 government, parliament, and diplomatic dignitaries, over 60 governors and prime ministers. Soccer star David Beckham, along with his wife, were guests, as was film uh, director Guy Ritchie, singer-songwriter Elton John, numerous other stars and dignitaries. Of the 1,900 people invited to the wedding, 300 specially chosen people were invited to the wedding dinner that evening hosted by Prince of Wales in Buckingham Palace. We can only imagine how elegant and luxurious and expensive that dinner was, right? Chances are it was a little nicer and more expensive than your wedding reception or mine. Imagine this. What if the invitations went out and everyone RSVP'd to come to this amazing wedding, and then on the day of the ceremony, none of the guests showed up? There was William all decked out in his military uniform and Kate in her beautiful white dress and a few close family members, but that's it. 
Everyone either texted or Facebooked or emailed or called with excuses why they couldn't come. And then later that night, no one came to the fancy dinner in Buckingham Palace. How do you think Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles would have felt if that had happened? Snubbed? Hurt? Angry? Humiliated? Well, believe it or not, that is precisely what happens in our Bible passage this morning. And if you can believe it, this future wedding dinner we're going to read about will be far grander and more important than that of Prince William and Kate Middleton. And get this, all of you are invited, and whether you attend or not will have eternal consequences. Our passage in God's Word this morning talks about a lot of interesting things. For for one, it, it gives us three lame excuses people give for not following Christ. This passage also challenges us to examine our love for Jesus as well as our love for the lost and our compassion for needy, underprivileged people. These verses give us a snapshot of the types of people who will be in heaven one day, as well as a snapshot of the types of people who will not. And finally, it describes for us this unbelievable wedding banquet in heaven that you don't want to miss. So there's something in this passage for all of us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I'm going to run down. I need a place to put my Bible along with my notes, so I'm going to borrow this. I hope that's okay. The setting of our text this morning is Jesus is having a dinner in the home of a prominent Pharisee, and um, he is surrounded by other Pharisees who are watching him intently. According to commentator William Barclay, the Jewish people in Bible times had several recurring ideas of what would happen when God broke into human history and established his kingdom here on earth. And one of those ideas was that of a messianic banquet. On that day, God would give this great feast, and to show his mighty power, part of the dinner entree would be the Leviathan. You know, those sea monsters in the Old Testament. It is this banquet that the Pharisee who speaks to Jesus in verse 15 of our text today is talking about. Look at verse 15 of Luke 14. Then one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things and said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Other translations refer to this as a feast in the kingdom of God. And if you notice, the man says that those who attend this future banquet will be blessed or happy. He is no doubt speaking of his fellow religious Jews here because any Orthodox Jew back then would have never dreamed that Gentiles would be invited to this banquet. Certainly not tax collectors or prostitutes or criminals or social outcasts. No, this was going to be a special dinner specifically for God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. And it's precisely this messianic banquet that Jesus goes on now to elaborate on in the form of a parable. You all know what a parable is. It's, a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly or, or spiritual meaning. Most scholars believe that this is an eschatological parable, meaning that it is describing the future kingdom of heaven, as the man in verse 15 has already alluded to. So let's read how our Lord replies to this man who mentions the happiness who will attend this great 
future banquet in the kingdom of God. Follow as I read verses 16 and 17. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. You need to understand that back in Palestine in Jesus' day, when a host held a banquet, there would be a two-part invitation. The first invitation would go out well in advance, but the specific day for the dinner was not yet decided. This invitation, that part of the invitation is what is mentioned there in verse 16. It says the man invited many to his banquet, and it's implied in the text that everyone who received this initial invitation accepted. Once he had an idea who was coming, the host would then spend lots of time and money and effort and uh, resources to prepare the actual banquet. And then when the time of the feast was at hand, the second invitation would go out. That's what's referenced in verse 17. Look at it again. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Now, to accept the initial invitation and then refuse to come on the day the feast arrived was a huge insult to the host. But that is precisely what happens in this story. Uh, Let's continue, verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. The striking thing in this parable is according to verse 18, all of the invited guests who had had said yes to the first invitation are now refusing to come. And here we have a sample of some of their lame excuses. In verse 18, the first man said, I just bought a field and I must go see it. Now, it's highly unlikely this guy bought the field sight unseen. He tells the servant that he has to go see the property. Again, even though he and the host knew he could have easily seen it after the banquet. The land would still be there. He had already made the purchase. It's not like he had to do it that very day. Similarly, the second man said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. Another translation says, try them out. Again, this man would not have bought the oxen had he doubted their value. And he too could have easily tried them out another day. The purchase had already been made. The third excuse was from a man who had just gotten married. He is probably referring to this Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. Listen as I read. If a man is recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. So that law exempted a newly married man from military service or being engaged in in public business for one year. But it did not at all forbid him uh, to attend uh, wedding banquets like this one. In fact, he was rather encouraged to do these types of activities in order to bring joy to his new wife. Men, husbands, one thing we learned from that law in Deuteronomy is that one of our goals in marriage is to bring happiness and joy to our wives, at least for the first year, right? 
<laughs> so in this story, we have a gracious host who's gone to lots of work to prepare an elaborate banquet. He's invited many guests, and all, all of them RSVP'd with a yes at the initial invitation. But when the actual time of the banquet arrived, none of them came. They all rejected, and none of them had legitimate reasons to refuse. Here we have a sample of their lame excuses. It's obvious they did not like the host. It's obvious that they did not want to be associated with the host. It's complete rejection. How does the host respond to this rejection? Does he cancel the party? Well, let's read verses 21 to 24. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in for my house that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So the banquet host became angry. He was greatly insulted that he had done all of this work to prepare a banquet and honor the guests, and now they were rejecting him. And so he sends his servant out into the streets and alleys and invites the social outcasts and underprivileged to his party. Verse 21 mentions the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, the people that society uh, tries to avoid. They are invited. These are the very types of people Jesus mentions back in verse 13. Look at that curious paragraph. Go back to the beginning, uh, verses 12 through 14. This sets the stage for the parable that we're studying now. And... Uh, He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. It's a curious paragraph, isn't it? In these verses, Jesus is not forbidding us to have our friends and relatives and rich people over for dinner. Not at all. In fact, there's great blessing and value in that type of hospitality and fellowship. No, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us and his Pharisee host the importance of our motives in reaching out to others. If we are throwing a party and we only invite our friends and relatives and rich neighbors, they will probably feel obligated to pay us back and invite us to their house for dinner. And if that is our primary motive in reaching out to them, we are so wrong. If the primary reason we reach out to others is so they can reach out to us in some way in return, our motives are ungodly. And that's precisely how the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day were. They just invited prominent people to their home. And they they took turns inviting each other to one another's homes. Would never think of a social outcast coming. But Jesus goes on to say, if we invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, those underprivileged people who may be homeless and don't have the resources to invite us back. We may not be rewarded in this life here on earth, but we will be rewarded in heaven. 
So a good deed in God's eyes all depends on our motives, does it not? If, we're, if it's not done out of pure love with no strings attached, if it's done to get a favor in return, it's not a righteous deed in God's sight. So in our parable, we see that the host of this heavenly banquet follows the advice that Jesus gave his Pharisee host about earthly banquets in verses 12 through 14. Invite the poor and needy to your banquet. Invite the hurting who probably won't have good manners. Invite people who haven't taken a bath in weeks and they'll stink up your house and get your floors dirty. Invite people that your friends don't think are cool because they are social outcasts. And because they are so poor and needy, they certainly won't be able to invite you back. It's called grace. Having a banquet for undeserving people who can't pay you back is called grace. And that's our story with God, is it not? We can't begin to pay him back, and yet he still invites us to the table and loves us and showers us with blessing after blessing after blessing that we don't deserve. It's amazing grace. But did you notice that's not the only group the host invited to the dinner? There was still room at the table, so we read in verse 23, the host ordered his servants to go outside of town to the highways and country lanes and invite outsiders to come in. Why? Verse 23 says, so that my table will be filled. I want my house to be full of joyful people, so go bring in outsiders. Verse 24 closes the parable with the host saying that all of those original invitees who rejected him early on will not be invited back to the banquet. They're going to miss out on the blessings and the joy and the celebration and the party. Now, as I said earlier, this is a parable, an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. In order for us to understand the spiritual meaning, we need to identify the main characters in this story. Who do you suppose the host of the banquet represents? It's God, right? And coming to the banquet represents entering into his kingdom through repentance from sin and faith in Christ and enjoying all of the blessings that are ours in Christ in the new heaven and the new earth one day. And who do you suppose is that first group of invitees who eventually rejected the host and refused to come to the party and gave all of those lame excuses? Yeah, most Bible scholars agree that's a reference to the scribes and Pharisees and other Orthodox Jews back in Jesus' day who rejected Christ. The very people that Jesus is having dinner with telling this story to. The gospel was offered first to the Jews, wasn't it? And yet many of them hated Christ. Not all of them, but, but most When he did miracles, they said that he did them in the power of Satan. And eventually the religious leaders murdered Jesus while the masses screamed, crucify him. When the majority of Jewish people rejected our Lord and his kingdom, the invitation expanded to those who were least deserving. That's who Jesus spent most of his time reaching out to while he was here on earth. The last group of invitees mentioned in verse 23 is those outside of the city. Who do you think that represents? You all and me and countless Gentiles from all around the world. 
God's kingdom spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth, even Maine, right? It went international in scope, and that was God's plan from the very beginning. You know, this passage reminds me of several other verses that describe the vastness of and diversity of the church of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Revelation chapter 7 tells us there is going to be this great multitude in heaven from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb worshiping Him. My friends, if you struggle with racial or ethnic prejudice, you will hate heaven. We white middle class Americans will be a small minority in the new heaven and the new earth. God's kingdom will include people from every nation, tongue, and tribe on earth, both Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, males and females, young and old, rich and poor, the weak, the needy, social outcasts. It will include former prostitutes and the worst of criminals who have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. Get this. Heaven will even include a few New England Patriots fans. Now, that's grace right there. Am I telling the truth? That's grace right there. I know you can tell I'm not a fan, right? You're going to pray for me. Uh, In another passage, Jesus says, I did not come to save the righteous. That is, those like the scribes and Pharisees who think they're righteous. I came to save sinners. I came to save people who are humble and broken and weak and lowly. And thus they know they desperately need a Savior. That's who makes up my kingdom. Those are the kinds of people who are invited to the banquet. The broken, the weak, the lowly, the humble. The huge question of the morning is, have you entered the banquet hall through repentant faith in Christ? Or are you still on the outside? And if you are on the outside, what are your excuses for not following Christ? The first two excuses in our Luke 14 passage are material pursuits. The man in verse 18 said, I just bought some land. I need to go see it. The second man, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go try them out. The love of money and earthly things has caused millions to ignore Christ, reject Christ, and not come to the banquet. And no wonder Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, and I quote, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'm curious, which of those is your first love this morning, God or money? And the things that money can buy. Another thing that competes for our affections is our love for other people, especially family members, right? That's the third excuse we find in this text. A man who just got married. I've got to make my wife happy so I can't follow you right now, Jesus. Maybe later on. Little did that man know that if he had become a passionate follower of Christ, it would have made him the best husband in the world, right? I don't think it's a mistake that the Holy Spirit prompts Luke to follow up this parable in the very next paragraph by talking about family relationships. Look at his radical words in verses 25 and following. 
Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone who comes to me does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What in the world is Jesus talking about there? Hate? He's not telling us to actually hate our family members because there's lots of other verses that teach the opposite of that, right? No, he's using hyperbole to make a dramatic point. What he's saying is that our love for him is to be so much greater than our love for family and friends that when you compare the two loves, love for family seems like hatred compared to our love for God and his son, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 10:37 Jesus put it this way, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, Christ must be your first love. I personally think that's what's being implied with all three of these excuses in this parable. If you love anyone or anything more than Christ for the long term, you can't be his disciples. It might be land or five yoke of oxen. It might be that home you just purchased or your spouse or your kids or grandkids or boyfriend or girlfriend. It might be your job or your new car or that sinful addiction. If Jesus is not your greatest treasure, you can't come to the banquet. None of the people in this parable who valued earthly things and relationships more than dining with Christ were invited back. Now, if you notice, I said most of the time. Because let's be honest, there are days for every single one of us who are Christians when Jesus is not our first love. Am I right? There are days when we love God's gifts more than we love the giver. And that is idolatry, my friends, and every single one of us are guilty of it. In fact, I think that's probably the sinful struggle that most of us Christians struggle with the the most. Loving God's gifts more than we love the giver. Loving those precious grandchildren. If you want to see two of the cutest, smartest grandkids on the planet, just come talk to me and Beth and we can can show you that. But it's so easy for our love for family to become an idol. We put those kids and grandkids or spouses or, or fiancés on this pedestal. But eventually... The Lord keeps working and we get to a place where we realize none of those people and things will satisfy our deepest needs. And we come back to Jesus as our greatest treasure. Amen. Another question this passage raises is, will there be a literal banquet up in heaven one day? Remember, this Luke 14 passage is simply a parable that may or may not have actually happened. It was designed to tell us about God's love for hurting, needy, undeserving people and the types of individuals who are going to be in the kingdom of God one day, as well as some of the types of individuals who will not be. But will there be a literal feast that God hosts one day in the future for his children? There's debate about that among Bible scholars, but many say yes. Let me show you why they say yes. Turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. Last book of the Bible. You shouldn't have a problem finding that one. 
Revelation chapter 19. Many Bible scholars believe that Revelation 19 propels us into the future and gives us a glimpse of heaven and what awaits those of us who know Christ. Follow as I read verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So these verses seem to describe an actual wedding feast in the future for Jesus and his bride, don't they? Verse 7 says, let us rejoice and give him glory because the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Jesus is the, the groom. He's the Lamb. Who do you suppose is his bride? <laughs> yeah, numerous verses in, in the scriptures, especially the New Testament, teach that all of us are his bride. Every single person who has repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ as Lord, Savior, and greatest treasure. We are his bride. And verse 8 says that we will be wearing white linens on that day. Our white linen garments will signify our radical transformation in Christ and his perfect righteousness that is ours by faith, as well as the practical righteousness that the Holy Spirit uh, empowered us to do while we were here on earth, the righteous deeds of the saints. Verse 9 continues, Blessed are those who are invited to this wedding supper of the Lamb. Does that sound familiar? That is very similar to what the Pharisee said to Jesus in the very first verse of our Luke 14 text. If you remember, in verse 15, he said, Blessed is the man who will eat bread at the feast in the kingdom of God. So there is a correlation between this Revelation 19 heavenly feast and our Luke 14 parable. I'm curious, how many of you love to eat? Raise your hand. Not just like to eat, love to eat. Yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm in that category. Um, can you imagine how delicious the food will be at this heavenly feast? I wonder what the entrees will be. I sure hope it's not the, the Leviathan sea monster from the Old Testament, don't you? Like some of the Jewish scholars speculate. <laughs> but if you think about it, it, it really doesn't matter what the entrees will be. I mean... Have you ever seen couples who are out to dinner and they are so in love they hardly look at their food all night? They're just gazing into each other's eyes and talking softly and laughing and enjoying each other. Some of you used to do that in your dating days, right? And then you got married. And now most of the time we husbands are focused on the food when we go out to eat, right? We, we might look at our wives when we come up for air, sad to say. At this wedding feast in Revelation 19, I believe we're going to be so enamored with Christ and our Heavenly Father that He could serve us dog food and it wouldn't matter. 
The entree will be secondary. It's clear in Revelation 19 that all of us at this banquet will be worshiping and rejoicing with our Lord as we are dressed in our beautiful white garments. And I can assure you it won't be dog food that we are served. It will probably be the best meal you have ever tasted. I predict it will be a hundred times better than what the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge had at their wedding feast. So it appears that there will be a literal feast that God will host one day for his children in heaven. The wedding supper of Jesus the Lamb. Will you be there? Will will you be there? My friends, you don't want to miss out on this feast because the alternative is terrible. The Bible is clear. Everyone who is not at this feast will be experiencing the righteous judgment of God for their sin in hell. Earlier we read that the host of the banquet got so angry at those who rejected his final invitation, he refused to invite them back. We can understand that, can't we? I mean, think about it. If you spent lots of money and time and resources to prepare an elaborate banquet and and then the people who said they would come did not show up, that would make you angry too, wouldn't it? Or at least extremely hurt, maybe humiliated. But there's a huge difference between that scenario and what God did to prepare our banquet. Not only will he prepare an elaborate meal for us one day, But in order to prepare a way for us to actually attend this future wedding banquet discussed in Revelation 19, our Heavenly Father had to purchase an entrance ticket to the party. And oh, what a price he paid. You all are familiar with it. We're going to remember it here in just a few minutes with communion. He gave up his one and only son to die in our place. Parents... If you gave up one of your precious children to die for someone so that they could go free and be healed and delivered, but instead of accepting your gift with gratitude, they laughed at you and rejected the sacrifice of your child, how would you feel? You can understand why God would get angry with those who refuse his generous offer of salvation, can you not? You're not just rejecting a delicious meal one day. No, you are thumbing your nose at the blood of Jesus. Could it be that there are some here today who are thumbing your nose at the blood of Jesus? Back to the scene that I painted earlier. The wedding reception dinner for Prince William and Kate Middleton hosted by the Prince of Wales in Buckingham Palace. The finest china and sterling silver place settings are out. The best food that money can buy is ready to be served, but no one comes. Can you imagine Prince Charles and Queen Elizabeth then ordering their servants to go out into the slums and alleyways of London and giving formal invitations to commoners and homeless folks and the poor, beggars, criminals, handicapped people, alcoholics, drug addicts, prostitutes, filthy people. And can you imagine them sending other servants to commoners all around the world who are nobodies in the world's eyes and inviting them to come? And can you picture these dirty, smelly, uh, destitute people walking up to Buckingham Palace with invitations in hand? And the tourists standing on the sidewalk are asking them, what are you doing? And with big smiles on their faces, 
these folks say, the queen has invited us to a wedding feast in the palace. And here is the invitation on official Buckingham Palace cardstock. Look at it. And they show the invitation to the guards and the guards open the gate and let them in. And they go into the building and before they go to the banquet, they uh, all take showers and then they're given nice, clean, white clothes to wear. And if they committed any crimes, they are completely pardoned. And then they are ushered into this exquisite banquet as an honored guest. That's our story as Christians, is it not? It is, but it's even better than that. Once you walk through the door, palace doorway of faith, you instantly become the bride of Christ. And he doesn't just give you an H2O shower. He washes you in his precious blood and forgives and cleanses you of all of your sins and gives you a new heart and transforms you from the inside out and dresses you in white. And he will honor you for eternity as his beloved bride as you serve and worship him in a perfect, loving environment. And to make all of that possible, Jesus had to die and shed his blood for his bride. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my God, would die for me? Amen. Hmm. Now, at most weddings these days, the bride is the center of attention. Not so at this Revelation 19 wedding feast. No, at that feast, the groom is going to be the center of attention, and rightly so, because our groom is king of kings and lord of lords. He is God in human flesh who created the heavens and the earth by simply speaking. He died for his bride so that we could be his bride and be forgiven and spend eternity with him. He deserves to be the center of attention, does he not? And for those of us who are already in the banquet hall, Jesus implies in our Luke 14 parable that we can't just stay inside the hall and hang out with our fellow Christians while we await for his return. You see, I believe that in that parable, we're not only the bride, but we're his servants in that parable. And what did his servants do in that parable? They went out, didn't they? They went out to the highways invited, and byways and invited others to the banquet too. In verse 23 of our Luke text, it says we are to compel people to come in. The NIV says we are to make people come in. Now, obviously, we can't force people to come to Christ, but we can urge and plead with them. We can tell them what Jesus has done in our lives. People all around us are weary and discouraged. Millions are lonely and empty and looking for something more in life. They have tried all sorts of earthly pursuits and relationships and sinful pleasures, but they are still empty. And that's because nothing can satisfy them like Jesus can. And so we go to them and we offer them this invitation. It's the invitation that Jesus offers in Matthew chapter 11. And if you are here today and you're on the outside of the banquet hall, Here's his invitation to you. Come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your weary souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How's that for a gracious invitation to the greatest wedding feast of all time? (laughs) William and Kate will have nothing on us. Their piddly little wedding will be nothing compared to ours. Amen? I close in wanting to apply this passage to all of our lives. First of all, motives matter. Why we do something is just as important as what we do in God's eyes. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, When you have a feast, don't just invite your friends and family and rich people with, uh, with the motive that they might pay you back one day. Instead, invite the weak, the poor, the destitute to your banquet. People who will never be able to pay you back in this life. And then you will receive a heavenly reward. Oh Lord, please give us clean hearts with pure motives. Please help us to serve others out of unconditional love with no strings attached. Amen? Now, that's a God thing to be sure. We'll never crank that out in our own strength. Only the Holy Spirit can produce unconditional love with no strings attached. So first application, motives matter. Second application, all people matter. Let's ask the Lord to produce in us a deeper love and compassion for the poor, the homeless, the handicapped, the sick, the imprisoned, the social outcast. The rest of the people of the world, the rest of the people of the world look down on these folks with disgust. Those are the types of people that our Lord loves to save and invite to the banquet. Some of you would be shocked at how many passages of Scripture, both Old Testament and New, admonish us to help the poor and the needy around us. A few years ago, Beth and I read a book by Tim Keller uh, called Generous Justice. It, it's, a, it's a great book on, on this topic. It's a convicting book, I can tell you. Now, to be sure, sometimes it's hard to love those types of people, Right? And often they are in bad situations because of their own sinful choices. And we don't want to enable them to continue to sin. But we still must love them and we need God's wisdom and grace to do that. Don't you want your church to be a church that just embraces all types of people, right? So motives matter. All people matter. Third application, there's no legitimate excuse for rejecting Christ. No one or nothing on this planet can satisfy your deepest needs like Jesus can. If you haven't already, would you come to him this morning in repentant faith? By faith, trust his bloody sacrifice on the cross as a full payment for all of your sins. Make him your first love. And if you don't feel like doing that, just ask the Lord to help you to feel like it. Ask him to take the scales off of your heart so that you can see him and see truth and then believe. I promise you, you will never regret that. In a sentence, what Jesus is saying to us in our Luke passage today is this. A lavish wedding feast is awaiting every person who will come to Christ in repentant faith And make him their greatest treasure. Let me say that again. A lavish wedding feast is awaiting every person who will come to Christ in repentant faith and make him their greatest treasure. Oh, how I pray that everyone here today will be in that great wedding feast of Jesus. Amen.
And I pray that as we leave here today, let us go out into our neighborhoods and workplaces and families and places of contact and invite others to join us at this great feast. All to the glory of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lamb, who shed His blood for us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let me just pray and then I'll be done. Lord, we are, we are excited and thankful for this passage. We are convicted by this passage. There's something here for all of us. We're sorry, Lord, for just hanging out with other Christians and just, just waiting for your return and, and not reaching out to others. Lord, would you change us in that regard? I want to pray for this church, Lord, that you would just help them to, to have an attitude towards the lowly and the weak and the needy and the destitute that you have. And I pray, Lord, that this church would be a lighthouse for Jesus on this island for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us. That you would help us more and more each day make you our first love and our greatest treasure. More and more each day, Lord. We all struggle with idolatry and we are sorry for that. Root out the idols of our lives. Help us to love the giver more than we love your gifts. We want you to be our greatest treasure more and more each day as we eagerly await for you to return, Jesus. And we are excited about this wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're going to be a part of all by your grace. In your name, Jesus, I pray.